Uh, if you're regularly here, you'll know we're in this series in Samson, and um, I, I, I kind of wondered what I'd taken on. <laughs> but I love it. Don't, are you loving it? Well, I am. And I love, I love having the privilege to be able to speak and teach. But there are occasions when I love it even more than normal. And today's one of them, because I get to talk about stuff I really love. I've said it all before. I'm not saying anything that I haven't said before. But I think it's really, really important, and I love it, and I hope you love it too. I also hope that we can open our hearts to whatever it is that God might be saying to us this morning. Have you ever asked the question, and I've asked this question many times before, why did God create anything at all? Or, or is that just me? Do you ever ask that question? I do. I, I believe the answer is one word. I believe the answer is love. It is the only way in the Bible that God is described in this way. God is a God of wrath, of forgiveness, of patience, of grace, but John tells us that God is love. That's the only way God is described. God is love. It's not described in any other way in those terms. All of the other ways of describing God, I think, I believe, are expressions of God's love. So when God's love reaches us, sometimes it reaches us as his forgiveness, or his patience, or his mercy, or his grace. They're all expressions of love. So sometimes love is expressed and meets us as forgiveness or patience or wrath or judgment, but God is love. Love always gives. That is the nature of love. And God created so that he could give to us and share with us all that he experiences as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is always a movement of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Always. Because love always gives. So God created out of love to share that love with those he created. This is brilliant. Not just because I'm saying it. But love must be freely chosen. Love can never be coerced, and it can never be manipulated. So I can say to Lisa, I love you. What I cannot tell Lisa is that she has to love me. I can't say, you love me. She has to freely choose that. Anything else is not love. And if love must be freely chosen, then there is always the possibility that the way of love will not be chosen. It is possible to choose the way of evil. Sin entered the world because love was not chosen. Genesis chapter 3, you'll be very familiar with these words. Genesis chapter 3, reading from verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... 
You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and for pleasure to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In that moment, God's dream was shattered. God made human beings the pinnacle of his creation to be part of and enjoy community with God himself. Sin breaks community. It did then and it does now. And sin shatters God's greatest dream that he might know and be known by the people he created. Since the moment sin shattered God's greatest dream, he has been working to keep the dream alive. God's great dream is of a partnership with those he created. God's dream is of participating with those he created in bringing about the kingdom he loves. Just get your head around those words. God's great dream is of participating. That means he includes people like you and me in bringing about the kingdom that he loves. God's greatest dream is that you and I, those he created and loves, might live in the same kind of love, of peace, of joy, acceptance, value and security that, that you find in God himself. And ever since that moment in the Garden of Eden, God has been working to keep the dream alive. Day after day, year after year, century after century, God has been searching, hoping, waiting and longing. He has shed tears of joy, tears of sadness, tears of anguish, tears of desperation because he is keeping his dream alive, this dream which is so big and so vital that he has not and he will not let go of. And from the moment sin entered the world and shattered God's dream, there has been a holy discontent. A holy discontent that is keeping his dream alive. The point is this, broken relationships is not what we were created for. There is a bigger and a far better story than that. We were created in the image of God to enjoy God and to know God. And God is keeping that dream alive. God kept that dream alive through Noah, choosing to start again. He kept his dream alive by making a covenant with Abraham and taking the covenant walk himself. And in doing so, saying clearly and powerfully... I am committed to this dream big time and I will keep the dream alive. <clears throat> he rescued them, he guided them, he provided for them, he kept them, he protected them and he blessed them. 
He gave them a land just like he promised. All the time, keeping the dream alive. But time after time, they did not choose the way of love. They rebelled. They refused to listen. They wandered off. They got into a mess. And they did not live well. And yet, always, God's holy discontent said, you were not made for this. There is a holy discontent that everything is not as it should be. So God keeps his dream alive. But as we know, Israel became comfortably numb and finds itself ruled by the Philistines. So is God keeping his dream alive? Turn with me to Judges chapter 13, and I'm going to take the time to read the whole of the chapter. I'm hoping you've already done it, but just in case you haven't, here we go. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you do not drink wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son, whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines." Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, I beg you, to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. Then the woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat, together with the grain offering, and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. 
Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was an angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things or told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mehenadan between Zorah and Eshtael. Everything is not as it should be. God never intended the Israelites to be delivered into the hands of the Philistines. But there is a holy discontent in God himself, and God is on the move. God is on the move between the dreaming and the coming true. God is working to keep his dream alive, but the dream has not yet been fulfilled. And between the dreaming and the coming true, in keeping his dream alive, God has chosen Samson. don't know if you noticed this detail as we went through. It's interesting that we read at the beginning of Samson's story that the Lord blessed him. It's right at the end of the chapter. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. Samson? The Lord blesses Samson. Have you been reading the story of Samson? Have you been listening to what we've been doing week by week? And yet it says the Lord blesses Samson. We read last week, uh, learned last week, that it is possible that Samson had in truth no real idea of what God was doing in him. And yet the text tells us that the Lord blesses him. Doesn't that strike you as being odd? Or is that just me? We've also noticed, because the story tells us, that it appears that Samson did not always, if ever, behave well. He was a Nazarite. He wasn't supposed to drink any alcohol. He threw alcohol parties. If you haven't read the story yet, there's another bit where he goes and he kills a lion, and on the way back he eats honey from the lion. He shouldn't do that either, because that's touching a dead thing. And next week we'll find out he wants to marry a Philistine. He shouldn't have done that either. He does everything he's not supposed to be. And do. And yet, the Lord blessed him. Do you know what? We don't read that about any other of the judges recorded in the book of Judges. The only one we read that the Lord blessed him is Samson. Here's what I think it is entirely God's gift whom. He blesses. We cannot, hear this, we cannot ask God to bless sin. If you are doing something right now in your life that you know is not right, you cannot ask God to bless it. God cannot bless sin, and he won't. However, even if and when we sin... God can choose to bless. That's an important distinction. And we have to be very careful what we do with it. 
We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week as it turns out. Blessing is always about and from God. It is never a sign or a result of human endeavor. That's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Because when I think I'm doing really well and I think I see God's blessings, it's really, really easy for me to think, oh yeah, you see, because I'm doing such a good job, God's blessing me. Mm-mm, foul. I might be doing a really good job, but it is entirely God's gift to bless. In keeping his dream alive, because of his holy discontent, the Lord blessed Samson. And the Lord began to stir in Samson, next verse. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Now, the meaning of the word stirred here is uncertain. Some commentators suggest that it means that Samson experienced some kind of divinely induced restlessness. I quite like that. The same word is found in other biblical stories, translated differently, but it's the same word. So when Joseph languishes in prison in Egypt, Pharaoh, remember, is troubled, same word, by a dream. When magicians and wise men of Egypt cannot interpret the dream, uh, the dream Joseph is remembered and summoned. And ultimately, Egypt is saved from a famine because Pharaoh was stirred or troubled or agitated in a dream. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar was a man who had absolutely everything any man could want. But he couldn't sleep because his mind was troubled. Same word. When magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers could not help him, Daniel was summoned. And deliverance began when Nebuchadnezzar's mind was troubled or stirred or agitated. Different commentators have different ways of explaining what God was doing in Samson. And I'm wondering if it is that Samson, that in Samson was a holy discontent. Things were not as they should be. A holy discontent. Sometimes when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of him as a dove, perfectly legitimate, Gentle, peaceful, whispering, encouraging. But sometimes he stirs us. He places in us a holy discontent that makes us agitated or restless or distressed because things are not as they should be. Perhaps sometimes the stirring within us from the Holy Spirit, a a holy discontent, comes when we have a sense of what could be and what should not be. Samson was from the Danite tribe, living in Mahanaden, which means the camp of Dan. Significant. They were not living where God intended. They never possessed the land that God had promised them through Joshua. They weren't living there. They lived a semi-nomadic life in the shadow of this town we talked about called Ekron, which was built by the Philistines in the land that the Danite tribe should be living in. 
Perhaps, as a growing Samson stared at the great city wall of Ekron, a holy discontent rose in him, something along the lines of, that should be our city. We should be living there. Things are not as they should be. Called to live in freedom, his people lived in the shadow of oppression. Things are not as they should be. As a tribe, Dan was considered of no account in Israel. Maybe Samson felt it shame. Things are not as they should be. And in him, the Lord began to stir a holy discontent. Well, whatever was happening, the Spirit of God was unsettling Samson, provoking him and disturbing him. And here's the question for Samson. What would he do? How would he respond to this holy discontent? Here's a phrase I pinched, but I love. Samson was receiving a gift of agitation from the God who is really disturbing. Samson receiving the gift of agitation from the God who is really disturbing is a disturbing God because... Things are not as they should be, and he is keeping his dream alive. God is still keeping his dream alive today. Friends, when we look around the world today, we see that things are not as they should be, don't we? And it seems to me that God often places in the hearts of his people a holy discontent. It's not hard to look around the world and see what is not right. Wars, cruelty, human trafficking, gun crime, knife crime, homelessness, poverty, slavery, stealing, fraud, corruption, sexual abuse, kidnap, torture, jealousy, envy, greed, pollution, I could go on. But God is keeping his dream alive. And maybe he does it through a holy discontent he places in people like you and me. People just like you and me who have a sense of what could be. People just like you and me who are citizens of a different kingdom. People just like you and me who can bring about change. Make poverty history began with a holy discontent. Things are not as they should be. The Easter team began with a holy discontent. Things are not as they should be. Open house began with a holy discontent. Things are not as they should be. Bringing a smile to a family torn apart by conflict begins with a holy discontent. Volunteering for CAP or the YMCA begins with a holy discontent. Speaking to a neighbor, the person nobody else wants to talk to, an estranged member of the family may begin with a holy discontent. A holy discontent causes us to want to make a difference as we live between the dreaming and the coming true. 
We've said this before, friends. As followers of Christ, we are not called to fit in and settle down. And do you remember, I was thinking about this this morning. You remember Noel who used to come? Remember Noel, the guy was in prison for a murder he didn't commit? Some of you remember that? Do you know what? remember what he said? If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Because you are called to live with a holy discontent. You are not called to settle down and fit in. That is not how it works in the kingdom of the heavens. Because God is keeping his dream alive and he's calling people like you and me to live with a holy discontent. Which causes us to do something. We are called to live with a holy discontent because we of all people know that everything is not as it should be. I read this quote in a book which really challenged me. Those who believe, they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. Boom. Those who believe, they believe in God, but without passion in their heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and at even times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. Why? Because God is a disturbing God, and God has a holy discontent, and God places in the hearts of his followers a holy discontent. And if, uh, these aren't in my notes, right, I'm going off on one now, but if you are not living with a holy discontent, I would seriously question whether in fact you even believe in God. Or you just believe in the idea of God. That's the challenge. God has not called you to a comfortable life, friends. Sorry. C.S. Lewis apparently said, if you're looking for a comfortable life, choose red wine. Between the dreaming and the coming true, God is keeping his dream alive because he knows we were not made for this. Between the dreaming and the coming true, God is looking for those who share his holy discontent. Between the dreaming and the coming true, we know that everything has not as it should be and won't be until the king comes. But those who follow Christ want to participate in what God is doing They live with a holy discontent. Here's a sad truth about Samson. Samson never reached his full redemptive potential because he was foolhardy and reckless and sought to make himself happy. Samson never reached his full redemptive potential because he was foolhardy and reckless and sought to make himself happy, rather than giving himself to the holy discontent that God had placed within him, and following the agitating pull of the Spirit of God. So friends, between the dreaming and the coming true, as God keeps his dream alive, we must choose how we will live. Amen.